Hello, and welcome back to Lifegasm Book One, Marshall's Promise. Evelyn Wallace here, issuing my standard pre-episode warning that this story was written as a book. So if this is the first you've ever heard of Lifegasm, you should probably go back to the beginning and listen through chronologically. Just trust me on this one. Thank you all so very much for tuning in. This would feel very pointless without you. Lifegasm Book One, Marshall's Promise, Chapter 19 that's private. So, for my father, civil rights wasn't just the issue of having the right to vote, although that was critical, or the right to live where you wanted, although that was critical. It was about those rights translating into something that meant you could meet your family's basic needs. That the mores of the country were not about measuring people's worth by wealth, That people's measure should be because they're people and because they have something to offer and something to be valued. Maya Wiley on The Oath with Chuck Rosenberg By and by, it was time to fly home to Oregon. I downloaded the audiobook version of Sex at Dawn, thanked Madeline as many times as I could before she started looking annoyed, and made my way to the airport by way of public transit. Back in LeGrand, I knew it was time to sit quietly with my deepest heart and the question of, what next? I'd spent four months running my own experiments on the, quote, facts of life. Facts such as, love looks like this. Survival looks like this. This isn't enough. You can't do it this way. Old friends were whispering to each other that I'd gone nuts, but I had never felt saner. In fact, as I looked back at the prior years of unconscious living and the unnecessary suffering I'd endured as a result, I couldn't help but think how crazy I used to be. Now, though, I asked my deepest heart if I was on the right track. It laughed at me and said, how many times do I have to answer the same question? But I can't live with Harriet Jean forever, I argued internally. So cast out some golden threads, I slash it responded nonchalantly. I started thinking, again, about shelter and the true primary need that it represents. Shelter equals non-negotiable necessity of life. Then I started thinking about all those homeless people in Salt Lake City. What if one of them was like me? What if one of them was trying to figure out their job on Earth and, in doing so, was foregoing the opportunity to earn cash? What if that homeless person was willing to work but didn't want to work for money? Wasn't it their right to do so as a free human? If that person wanted to figure out how to eat and sleep and piss and move about without money, wasn't that their birthright? And if we don't have the right to eat and sleep and piss and move about without money, how can we claim to live in freedom? Is having zero dollars equivalent to criminal activity? And what of those who toil away at paying jobs and still don't have enough to survive and thrive? I'm thinking specifically about my Jamaican friends and those from countries with similar GDPs. So, it was looking like the institution of private property was a real problem. Private property allows us, one human to another, to say, This is mine. You aren't allowed to physically exist here. Even if you need to sleep. Even if you need to eat even if you need to piss. If you exist here, I can call men with guns who we have collectively agreed have the authority to take you away. Or if I choose to let you exist here, you must give me money. 
If you don't, I'll call the men with guns to take you away. Private property effectively outlaws the lifestyle of a nomad or a hunter-gatherer or a guru. I myself was willing to work hard and give my life's energy for the betterment of humanity, and I would have been happy to do so for free. That is, if I could survive in this world with zero dollars. If I hadn't figured it out before, it was coming into clear focus now. Man's law and spirit's law were two separate accountings. When you break man's law, you're labeled with the catch-all scarlet letter, criminal. When you break spirit's law, you're labeled a captain of industry. Alas, that's the soup we're swimming in. I knew the institution of private property wasn't going anywhere, even if it was a human construct that would inevitably manufacture its own demise. Hence, I also knew I'd have to play by the rules, at least for the time, unless I wanted to get thrown in jail. I bookmarked the topic and got to work looking for small, budget rental options in Legrand. Thank you, little pile of savings, I prayed. You're doing great. I called a friend who was the superintendent of a building known as the Sacagawea Annex. At seven stories tall, it was the first official skyscraper west of the Mississippi, at least for a short while, probably a few days, before it was dethroned by a legitimate skyscraper somewhere in an actual city. The Sacagawea Hotel was the original building that had been annexed, but the hotel itself had been demolished and replaced by an ugly industrial bank some decades ago. Based on the architecture, I would guess the 60s. When I asked my superintendent friend if there was any availability in the residential space of the annex, he had good news and bad news. Yes, actually, there are a few nice places available now, he said, but we can't technically accept any new tenants until we fix the elevator. What happened to the elevator, I asked. It got hit by lightning last summer, he told me. I laughed. He did not. Oh, you're not kidding, I said. Nope, not kidding. My apartment is on the seventh floor, and the laundry is in the basement. Believe me, I'd like to get the elevator fixed as soon as anyone. It's looking like it'll be within the next month or two. He explained some intricacies about the delay. The elevator, while fully functional and legally operable, was also very old. The part that had been fried was apparently so ancient the company didn't have any comparable replacements and would have to forge a whole new original, or something like that. I thanked him and hoped that his timeline was accurate. I wandered down Adams, which is Legrand's de facto main street. Our main street is a residential road, and it's a long story. And I noticed a sign that I'd probably passed a thousand times before without ever once seeing. It was a sandwich board for an apartment complex right there on Adams, and wouldn't you know it, they were accepting applications. I walked into the office to inquire. Things looked hopeful at first glance. This apartment complex had income restrictions. That is, it was designated low-income housing, so I thought I'd be a shoo-in. I paid the application fee and filled out the paperwork. When I handed it to the lady across the desk, she looked stern. So you're unemployed? she asked. It felt so harsh and judgmental. Unemployed was a title for deadbeats and losers, or so it seemed as soon as I heard it applied to me. Well, I don't have a paying job at the moment, that's correct, I answered, but I'm working hard to figure out my job on Earth. I smiled. I figured she'd either get it or she wouldn't. It's a revealing window onto the world as we've made it that there was no state-sanctioned assistance for those of us working towards shining our light as brightly as possible. The entity we are entitled to ask for help, apart from our own families— 
doesn't recognize the value of such a quest, as demonstrated by a lack of box to check. The world doesn't owe you a handout, I can hear my conservative aunties argue. But that's just it. Taking turns helping each other is a paradigm that doesn't fit within the current paradigm. And someone seeking to discover the work their heart calls them toward is perceived by this paradigm as that person asking for a handout. How, may I ask, are you planning on paying rent? The woman at the desk asked. Oof, guess I should have known that was coming. But didn't she understand? It always worked out. If I needed a place for a few months and said that I would pay rent, I was, by merely speaking the words, making a promise to pay rent, regardless of my feelings about the inherent spiritual illegality of private property. I understood that the idea of trading one resource for another was within nature's mandates, and that the terms of this particular trade were shelter for cash. Didn't she know that I only made promises I knew I could keep? The answer was, of course she didn't. She was living by the rules she'd been taught, and the rules I lived by were beyond the parameters of that proscribed cultural footprint. Well, I have a little pile of savings now that would cover as much time as I think I need, I said, and eventually my ex-husband owes me my share of the equity of our house. I really just need a place to live for a little while, like maybe two or three months. I mean, if I end up needing to stay longer, I would, you know, if I really had to, I could snag a minimum wage job here in town, I'm sure. I could feel the unconventionality of my own explanation. I could feel the words get papery, like ash, as they tried to wrap around the standard narrative of how things are done. I don't know if I'll stay in this town forever, I continued. I've just used up a lot of my couch surfing capital, and I'd like to have my own space for a few months. Her eyebrows furrowed as she clacked on her keyboard. As I waited, I felt the visceral growing pains of breaking free from traditional rules while still living in a world governed by such rules. I recognized that if I weren't so doggedly committed to following my deepest heart above all else, I would surely get in line, apply for a job, check the right boxes, ignore the dimming of my inner light, and ace the human-sanctioned invisible test of life. What a sad little world we've built, where the dimming of lights is encouraged in the name of making ends meet. The woman was reassuring and said she'd do what she could. A few days later, she called me into her office with disappointing news. It turned out that my equity in the quaint cobalt craftsman put me over the threshold of assets required to qualify for the low-income housing unit. I realized what an unusual fiscal position I was in. I wasn't as poor as I needed to be to get official governmental assistance for shelter, but I was, at least until William paid me or until I secured paying work, rather poor, living off a smaller and smaller stack of money. In placing the call of my deepest heart on the highest rung of my value pyramid, higher than money even, I was voluntarily walking the line between privilege and poor as fuck. This would be easier, I thought, if I just wanted to be a nun. You weren't born to be a nun, said my deepest heart. Yeah, 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 I said back, but at least I'd have a monastery and a box to check and a language to speak. You know that's not what you really want. You don't have to keep reminding me, I said to myself. I was exhausting me. It will all be okay, my deepest heart said. I know you can't see the end game, but you don't have to. All you have to do is trust. So I trusted. And here's what happened. I told William I'd been looking into apartments in Legrand and coming up short. 
I asked if he'd float the idea to his parents that I might rent from them, at least until they sold the bungalow. I figured the worst that could happen was they'd say no and I'd be in the same position I was already in. William checked in with his family and reported back. So, guys, get this. Apparently, they had taken the Oak Street bungalow off the market. The buyers they'd been working with had made a series of unreasonable demands, and they'd grown weary of long-distance real estate negotiations. A few phone calls later, and it was all arranged. Can you believe the thread of this fucking story? I lived it firsthand, and even then sometimes it's hard to believe. Here was the plan. I would pay his parents as much as I would have paid at the Sacagawea Annex in a month-to-month arrangement that would probably only last a few months. Conveniently, the informal contract could start immediately in those first few days of December. I asked William to relay the promise that I would treat the house with the respect I would treat my own property, though this decency seemed so obvious that I was a little unsettled to feel compelled to say it out loud. I promised that I would move out without complaint when the time came, but that I hoped they could extend the courtesy of giving me 30 days' notice this time. I thanked William for playing the middleman, spent a glorious porch morning with Harriet Jean saying goodbye and thank you, and moved my small bundle of belongings back into the Oak Street bungalow. My life is turning out A-OK, I said to my deepest heart as I sat on the furniture set that had stayed with the house, if but by the seat of my pants. I steeped in gratitude, like tea, and thought for a moment. But what about the people who don't have an ex-husband whose parents are willing to rent their empty bungalow and who are unable to get around paying all the standard costs of renting, like application fees, security deposits, first and last month's rent, etc.? What about people who have some sort of life experience, whether it's similar to mine or not, who can't find shelter? What about the vast numbers of people on Earth who survive on less than one American dollar per day? I am grateful as fuck for my connections and my manifestation powers, but how are my fellow humans, the people I love as I love my children, especially the ones in impoverished countries, how are they supposed to manifest enough to survive, let alone thrive? Now you're talking, said my deepest heart. Oh boy, I thought. I wouldn't even know where to start in solving these problems. I was just riffing. Don't worry about the details and just keep following my lead, it said. And, as usual, I promised I would. <laughs>